0: Welcome to One Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. As always, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, We've actually dropped off of Twitter this week. I just, I'm having, I'm struggling being associated with what's happening on that platform recently. I suppose a version of it has always gone on over there, but it's just gotten to a point where I just can't be associated with it anymore. So my apologies to folks who have been following the show over there, but we've shut it down and moved everything over to LinkedIn. So please do uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd love to have uh, all of those people migrate over. And be sure, of course, to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, We've just released our media kit for 2023. We've got a bunch of completely new content planned for next year. And of course, it's sponsors that help make this show possible. So please help get the word out to media shops or some client-side marketers that you may know. B2B brands are our sweet spot. For example, brands in tech or trends, trend reporting brands, research brands, analytics, media, or consulting and professional services. Those who, in essence, sort of promote their offerings to clients or agencies are our best uh, supporters. The show is a perfect way to add, in my opinion, meaningful incremental reach to your marketing industry, uh, media and sponsorship plan. Hell, I think we're a better play than most uh, conferences. And uh, we have the best client and agency talent on this show. and We have an amazing group of listeners. In fact, the show is now approaching a half million downloads and is doubling every six to eight months. If you're interested in seeing uh, the uh, sponsorship kit, you can download it on our website. Or you can reach out to us at hello at OnStrategyShowcase.com. That's hello at OnStrategyShowcase.com. We're really excited about the possibilities for 2023 and hope that we can rely on um, you guys to circulate the word to get more sponsors on the show. There's one thing I want to mention before we get into today's episode. It's that, uh, unfortunately, again, I made the mistake of referring to James Herman as John Herman. So I'm sorry about that, James. I screwed up again. It's not the first time I've done it. So forgive me. That said, welcome to episode two of our series on planning for effective outcomes. That last uh, time we had Mark Ritson and we were talking about starting out right. Today's episode recognizes that while there's a lot of talk about performance marketing versus brand marketing, the question is, is there a third option? Tom Roach and Claire Strickett of Jellyfish join me to help us think through it. It's a big topic. So once again, we welcome David Tiltman, SVP content at Wark. Uh, Wark is the sponsor of this series. Uh, Welcome, David. Hello again, Fergus. And it was, um, this was a great conversation. This was a show, an episode that I recorded, um, uh, with these guys. And because of how it turned out, I decided I wanted to put it in as part of this series. And, um, and there was a number of reasons. I think it's the time of the year when we're thinking of 2023, there's a lot of planning going on. There's a lot of conversation around performance marketing versus brand marketing. And, um, so it became sort of this, it just sort of felt like the right time. And as, as I recorded the show, I, a couple of things really struck me and. Um, with the focus on on performance versus brand marketing, the the conversation conversation eventually got and led to sort of campaigns that seem to be doing both uh, brand and performance in the same execution. So, the the listener will hear us talk about brands like Geico and Progressive. Uh, you know, compare compare the market in the in the UK and the KFC finger licking good campaign in the UK, and it's sort of led the three of us as part of the conversation to sort of ponder the fact of, you know, is creative prescription the, the real issue here? Uh, are we just producing the wrong kinds of ideas? Is it really about spend split? Or is there a way in certain categories and maybe in all categories to be able to do both in one?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting one. Uh, and this this area of brand and performance uh, is such a hot topic uh, in the industry now, and it's one we've been tracking for several years at WALK. Uh, obviously, Tom and Claire will do a very good job of uh, defining exactly what we mean when we use the terms brand uh, and performance. Uh, but I think once you understand Uh, Those concepts and the idea of timescale of effect, the idea that different types of uh, marketing communications uh, drive different types of effect over different timescales. Then you have a number of different questions you need to ask. And one is around audience. How tightly do you you target around in-market consumers? One is around media uh, which is the type of media uh, that, that that works best for these different uh, techniques, and uh, and around creative, you know, does does uh, do you need separate creative and messaging strategies uh, to to meet your brand needs and your performance needs? And there are definitely those who advocate a sort of twin track approach. So your brand is doing something, uh, and your performance is is sort of operating uh, uh, almost like on a simultaneous track. I, I can see a lot of logic in that. Um, I, guess, I guess my real worry there is around uh, the siloing uh, of those two techniques and the idea that if they run on sort of twin tracks that that you've got two teams that, that, that barely interact, barely talk to each other. Uh, and I'll give you an example of why that's important. So we've seen uh, in lots of studies around the world um, that one of the biggest drivers of things like website traffic and uh and search traffic is in fact things like television advertising so if you're not planning tv with search impact in mind or if you're not planning your search strategy without bearing in mind what's going on uh, uh in tv then you're missing a big part uh a, b- a big part of the uh the trick And actually, one of the big discoveries in performance marketing over the last few years has been um, the impact of brand and the impact of brand building on things like cost per acquisition, on things like uh, uh, um, ROAS. So there is an idea emerging now that strong, well-built brands actually operate better in a uh, performance marketing context. The alternative, as you say, is this sort of branded performance idea that you try and achieve everything. That's a very difficult thing to pull off. Um, But we are seeing some advertisers uh, try. I recently uh, interviewed a a very senior marketer at one of the world's biggest advertisers, and they're looking at exactly this. But the only way they can get to that is by doing, uh, doing campaigns, or they call them platforms, ideas that are so big and so sort of, Rich that they're able to drive uh, a very strong sort of brand effects as they and as they accrete over time, but those ideas are also able to run right down into sort of promotional activity uh, as well. So the, the the whole thing joins up. But to get that, you need a very that's that's a very big idea, big promotional campaign, and and realistically, there aren't many advertisers with the
0: scale of spend and the depth of expertise to pull that off. It's it's really interesting and I and I think I hope that this uh this conversation, this episode will stir a lot of conversation in the industry. I know as an industry we need to probably study creative execution a little bit more to get a sense of of creative strategy and its isolated impact on um on results. So um we're excited about that. Thank you, David. Thank you, Fergus. So this is episode number two with uh, Claire Strickett and Tom Roach. Enjoy. But first, a word from our sponsor. We're delighted to have Wark as the sponsor of this special series. Wark is the authority in marketing effectiveness. They help you become more successful across strategy, media, creative, and digital commerce. Wark will give you the confidence to challenge the status quo and fuel the innovation needed to take your marketing effectiveness to the next level. With Wark, you can inspire your marketing thinking, maximize the effectiveness of your creativity, and prove your business case. Their unrivaled marketing intelligence is used by the world's leading brands, agencies, and media owners to create work that works. To learn more, go to work.com. That's W-A-R-C.com. And now, back to the show. Just to set the stage for the conversation for the listener and for me, can you give me your definitions? Maybe we'll start with Claire. Claire. Claire, can you give me your definition of performance marketing and brand marketing?
2: This feels like a bit of a test. Well, I think the first thing to say... (laughs) Please push
0: your buzzer when you're ready.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's like, yeah, 10 seconds. Um, I think the first point coming from like Pedant's Corner, a corner I occupy too often, to be honest, is um, that once upon a time performance marketing, and probably still in its purest sense, meant a very specific kind of digital media buy where you paid by action, right? Instead of paying by reach or frequency like you would with the tv you pay by click um or purchase or whatever it is so that's the performance element of it um and so that is communications aimed at eliciting an immediate response from an audience who must necessarily be in market or they wouldn't be responding immediately um i think there's been some slippage with the phrase so that it now is becoming a synonym for what might is might be called all comms that have that objective, the objective of eliciting immediate response, whether or not it's bought on that kind of media principle. So it's become a bit of a synonym, I think, for what Les and Peter call, Les and and Peterfield call activation or other people in some businesses call trading or direct response. But ultimately, it's aimed at eliciting an immediate response from people who must necessarily be in market or they wouldn't be interested in buying your product and therefore it returns it gives most of its returns back to the business within a short time frame versus brand communications, which I think are better potentially talked about as brand building communications, or perhaps that's even in itself not a very useful phrase, are aimed at the entire market, including people who probably in the majority won't be in market for months or years. So it's laying down long-term memories so that when they do eventually come into market, they take action that's favorable to your business. And so. You could could say in a way that brand building communications are by definition those which deliver their payback, the majority of their payback after six months and performance or trading or DR are communications which deliver the majority of their payback in a very short term period. So I think it's a targeting question and a kind of delivery question and all the other distinctions about what's the best kind of creative and what's the best channel selection all emerge out of that out of that fundamental distinction, I think.
0: Tom, well, how would you describe them?
3: Um, if Exactly as Claire has said. Um, I think if we were to say it really, really briefly, you'd go longer-lasting effects um, is going to be brand building and immediate effects will be direct response or performance um, advertising or marketing. Um, of course, that is a bifurcation. Lots of things can do both brand building communication very very often sells immediately um it's probably less likely the other way around where not very much direct response and performance activity can or is able to do anything in a longer longer term way um so, sometimes it can um so that's that's I guess the the quickest thing the other thing to say i think is um the word performance is really problematic yeah uh, when when you believe that you know really good there's good communication and bad communication there's good advertising bad advertising really good stuff really good marketing as a whole should be seen as performing and so the word performance it's a genius bit of um marketing actually whoever came up with it has utterly depositioned um half of what is done today. And and just that word itself is, is is problematic and causes, I think actually causes brand people, of which I am one or was one, um, to sort of slightly get the hackles up. And that actually isn't great because it it create, has created a bit of a, uh, w- certainly within the agency world, I think has created a sort of sense of otherness and bifurcation and silos and distrust.
0: How did we get to the point where there has been in the agency world such disdain for performance is it and and vice versa, there's these almost these political tribes who you're either on one side or the other. How did it become so tribal? and um is it because of the fact that it that one became so dramatically more successful from a revenue point of view than the other? I mean the first thing
3: to say, I think is that that this strange split has been in evidence in the industry for decades and decades and decades. Different, so you know, direct response people, direct marketing people, and advertising or brand people. So that so it's a similar split to that one that that I think was sort of you know evident in probably the seventies, and eighties, nineties. And um, then you get the platforms arriving, and then you get um, a whole load of specialists, people who are you know they might call themselves performance marketers or growth marketers or growth hackers even they begin to use use these self-service direct response platforms and they get really, really good at it. And they sell their services um, as sole traders or little agencies or little groups of people um, to to clients, or sometimes the clients are themselves, those people. And they just become incredibly good at using this this new set of skills, this new train set. And so it evolves separately from, from what was the advertising world. And so you have these two worlds that don't often speak to each other um I, I was first aware of it. um I, I, It it f- well, first really annoyed me when um I was invited to a Google talk, and they said normally we have brand people separate from the performance people, but this time it's going to be together. And I was like, "What? I, I had no idea there was this split. <laughs> I've obviously been living on a different planet somehow." In it was, I think I was at AMV at the time. No, actually, sorry, BBH. And so I that sort of shocked me that there was this bifurcation and I did a talk about the value of brand to a bunch of performance people and it was quite it was quite a kind of interesting coming together there was a sort of cross vitalization that seemed possible and and important for this industry to really grow up um so I think yeah and I'll let Claire give yeah, give her perspective on it in a sec but yeah it feels like there, there does feel like there's a need for it and a time where we can start um, working it out again and getting back together again, particularly as you've got the platforms talking more and more about brand building, because they want to start hoovering up the brand building budgets. So they're not satisfied with just being direct response channels. They want to also, they want to have 100% of the market, not just 50.
0: So Claire, for you, what's the danger of having the sort of, what has been in the past, this tribal approach to it all?
2: Well, it can make for quite a just sort of human level quite an unpleasant sort of working environment if if it goes really wrong. And I think you know I've seen it. But well, I've seen I've seen conditions where it works brilliantly. Where sort of ultimately it's all about money. I think Tom mentioned budgets there, and it can become a question of fighting over who gets budget and with budget status and and all that all that kind of thing. So just from a sort of human level, like it's it can create a less less enjoyable working environment and that's always really important to me. But ultimately, instead of seeing how um you can each maybe help answer the other person's problems. So oh you know, you're your kind of CPAs are, are, are plateauing in performance. Well maybe if we introduced a bit of brand thinking, you could actually help with that. Or, you know, you're 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 not getting enough conversion. Well maybe we could come, you're missing opportunities to kind of help each other out, basically. Um because you're just sitting on the other side of the fence lobbing lobbing rocks at each other and going deeper into your little kind of patch rather than looking over the fence and taking a helping hand from the people next door. Um so it's fundamentally, as well as being a bit miserable, um and it can it can can just limit the, the the effectiveness of of any marketing operation. So that's that's what any so sort of CMO or anyone who has remit over both both these tribes such as they are often uh would want to watch out for but as often it comes down to often boring things like org structures so sometimes you'll have performance people reporting into the head of sales exactly and yeah. advertising people reporting into like the head of brand and then those two people as i say can sometimes not always i've worked in both cases so no one can guess what i'm referring to <laughs> but sometimes they can end up kind of seeing themselves as enemies yeah because they're want each other, they're fighting over a pot of money. Ironically, if they work together, they could probably, uh, to use a very relevant phrase in the UK right now, grow the pie. <laughs> so you could both get more budget if you can both pr- um, prove that everything that you're both doing is worth money, is is working. You can get more kind of money ciphered in rather than squabbling over how it's divided up. Um, so yeah, ultimately, it, it it just limits what you can achieve.
0: I mean, it seems to me that the loser in this game is those who sort of associate themselves with being the brand side of the equation? Because, in terms of what performance marketing is delivering in the short term, I mean that seems to be the primary motiv- motivation of both clients—that they're looking for results that are within the six months for activities that are happening or deployed now. It's become—it seems to have become this huge challenge to actually encourage and and um, and generate the appetite for investing. In the longer term, Tom, yeah. do you see what I mean? Yeah, I, I think. Uh, Shit, I mean, it, why it, you know why do it when when you know the 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 time somebody's in a career or in a job can be twelve months to twenty four months. Why would I invest my my performance uh, p- potential for me to look good as a performer in my job on something that is as you I love the term you use longer lasting versus long term. think just
2: before yeah, to I mean, Tom. This
0: not, i'm just going to yeah. say
2: it's like I mean, there we are talking over i think i was just going to add an extra framing to that which is you know, job tenures but also quarterly updates to the city and all that kind of thing like there is a huge amount of pressure whether you're a publicly or privately owned business to to like deliver now right yes
3: the, all those short-term pressures i think they, they've sort of probably all always existed but i think the world of um the 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 digital platforms and the metrics that they're able to prove in real time are, you know, have they've just done an amazing job, that world, I think, of, of convincing the right stakeholders that their kind of advertising is going to pay back greater and quicker than some other kind of advertising. And the brand world, sadly, despite having these incredible um, forces of intellectual might. Um, and incredible um, data sets that we have to work with so you know you've got you've got les and peter and you've got byron sharp and got these people these these intellectual powerhouses and um, and the ipa and the uk really push pushing the pushing that agenda we haven't made the case as strongly as we might as simply as we might um to to some really important people now i think i think there is a um a, a change you can feel that there is a world of Maybe more digital, data-driven performance marketing types who've come up through that world. They may be working within um, slightly more data-driven organisations who are now cottoning on to. It sounds like it's happening in the states from your perspective, cottoning on to some of the great work that people like Les and Peter have done, which is which is putting the case for for um, for brand building and doing both. And so I think I think there is a correct a, a correction happening. I can see it. There's something I'm I'm thinking about at the moment. This idea of the performance plateau. The, this notion that 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 startups and scale ups get to a certain scale. They use performance marketing to do that. They then start to 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 reach a bit of a plateau as their as their um their 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 ROAs or the CPAs don't aren't giving them what they need, and then they're looking for something else and they're seeking the kind of you know the 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 theory and the practice that's going to help them do that. And of course, the answer will lie in the work of, of, of Burnett and Field and, and, and all that stuff. And it's very, very interesting when you hear, particularly, you know, I'll speak speaking to a client at the moment, a, a US B2B, very data-driven enterprise organization who heard about Burnett and Field and, and want to apply it. And, and so that, you know, there's, there is a world that Burnett and Field have yet to conquer, but it feels like it's
2: happening.
0: I look at... Um... What Bennett and Field say, I look at what Byron Sharp says, and they're well. Particularly Byron is constantly battling with everybody else, and it happened again this week in the contagious article from uh, Felipe Felipe Thomas uh, at Oxford. Uh, mm-hmm. There's just so there's so much, and and I and I think it's healthy that there's debate, but it also can lead to confusion. And when we're when we're asking, when when Bennett and Field are asking or proposing sixty forty in budgets, it's so. I mean, if you're, it it's so difficult to get that bought into in an organization. It I mean, it is the thought of that um, is extremely difficult for most brands to digest. Do you kind of, uh, do you sympathize with that? Do you have any suggestions of how that can be addressed or do we have any great examples of how it's been successful? Because even the underlying data is questioned because of its sort of a limited scope. So what are we to believe and are we creating a confusion that we don't need to create? I think that's 15 questions in one.
2: I know. You said you'd give me another question. I think you've got five. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Well, just one sort of to to further add rather than to answer any of your questions. I think what's what is interesting and and inevitable with any body of work is that sort of the sort the sort of greatest hits or the, the simplest bits of it are naturally the bits that, that spread widest and without context. Yes. So, you know, that's that 6040, they actually they've published a whole book that shows it's it's actually, you know, that's that's a kind of you know opening gambit but it varies depending on it does vary depending on the age of your company so in a startup phase it's much less the 60 is much reduced so i can't remember what it is off the top yes. my head. so so there is a lot of subtlety and nuance but inevitably as with anything in life um everything gets distilled down to the kind of catchphrase um so i think that's inevitable but it doesn't really answer your question but it's just interesting to watch gosh how to kind of um take that say 60 40 for the simplest version of it into an organization and and to prove um you can start to do it incrementally like that is something that i've seen done you start with say 10 20 30 and you and you build it up um but even then you have to get your foot in the door but it's the thin end of the wedge you start kind of building that up and you start and and you start to show that it's working, then you can slowly invest more and more and more of the budget. So it's you know it's just a basic principle of kind of step by step. Um, so you start start by listening to people rather than shouting at them, and then start by being helpful, and then sort of be more and more helpful until you get to where you want to be. Is is how I've I've seen it done.
0: You know, uh, uh, John Herrmann, um uh, a recent book called Future Demand. Um great short read. Uh he he articulates it in a really uh, interesting way. It's basically the same um, it's the same um recommendation, but it's put in a language that may work better at a C-suite level or CFO level when he talks about it in terms of uh, immediate demand or, or existing market and and uh and future demand. So existing demand and future demand that seems to be getting to a place where uh everything else can fall underneath that and there can be debate etc but it's understandable it's relatable i i it's hard to it's hard to deny that that's a reality so so tom is is it an, is it partly an issue of language that we need to sort of find new ways to talk about it so that the confusion is um less evident
3: I think language is very, very important in this, and you only have to see, you know, that Les's work. Some of the best bits of it are so simple. You know, the the, the rule of thumb of sixty forty, the couple of charts that he that have become quite famous. Those things are absolute. Always seem to be part of the the pack that goes to the to the C suite to try and convince them of the importance of brand building. That they are kind of base level um, things that that seem to get used and seem to work. Um, so and, and those things are very simple. The language is simple. I think we mistake um, this mythical CFO for being somebody who is um, a super intellectual. Um, then they're not necessarily C-suites are actually very simple people who who like simple language, plain language. I think th- there's often a thing in this in this industry where we have to try try and learn the language of the board and the language of finance. I'm sure that's important. But just using sim- simple, stories, simple language is is going to be vital. I often think with with a thing this question of what's a brand and how do you how do you convince your CFO that that, that um, brand building is is gonna, needs to be part of this. Ask them, you know, why they chose their car, why they're wearing that watch, why they have that handbag. They will um, they will respond in a human way to that and understand. I think emotionally and humanly what it is to build a brand or at least to open up a conversation. So I don't think it's necessarily about, um, you know, l- loads of data, loads of um, very complex things. Um, it's, you know, uh, much as, as um, many people in this world want to make it science, and I'm probably as guilty of that as anybody um, or an academic pursuit. I think making it simple, making it practical, using common common regular language is really important I, I think and back on this this subject of the this kind of academics debating the academic the academic world is famously like bitchy it's famously <laughs> a world where people attack each other all the time um and i think they're just i think it's just sport so i think i think with whether it's um, um they're getting, getting so
0: much attention, attention.
3: Of course, it gets attention. It gets your attention on Twitter to be like that. I know that for myself. I used to be quite spiky and snarky on Twitter. I've, I, as, 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 when when you then see your CEO follow you, that that means you you start being less snarky. <laughs> get a following, so you know, I can, it's a way to build. In fact, I started on Twitter by by trolling slightly bar and sharp, being a bit snarky about stuff. You know, many people do that kind of thing, and it's really rubbish, but it does sort of work um and so i can see why people are you know in this world why we use why we kind of you know try and be controversial try and create black and white positions because black and white positions are kind of more interesting but the reality i think is is always going to be some somewhere different than black and white
0: yeah and, and that's a that's a great point and it gets to sort of the 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 uh, the heart of the the this episode when we when we talked the last time, we sort of talked ourselves into this uh, particular aspect of all of this, and and it it is true that over the last um, you know with with, with work from and Field and from others, there is this recognition that both need to happen. So while we've moved from this tribal one, you're in one bucket or the other, there is now the the marketing sciences have brought it together now, and there is this sort of recognition that we have to do both do them on separate tracks, but they need to be happening at the same time. And we're talking about the more performance-oriented versus the the uh, longer-lasting brand-oriented. But what about the question of achieving both in the same execution? This is the thing that I've always been intrigued by because I look at certain campaigns here in the U.S., some that I've seen from from Europe, and I kind of go, well, aren't they achieving both at the same time? time when you look at geico or progressive insurance here in the u.s if you look at expedia with their uh travel yourself interesting campaign which has been brought up to me as an example of this in the uk um aren't they executing on that exact model
2: i wanted to i mean yes i first of all i think we know that things can do both uh, and you know, Les and uh, Les and uh, Les and Pete sort of acknowledge that, but they still say you'd better do them separately. So I, I appreciate that that is not a re- rebuttal. I think when you said you look at certain campaigns, that was the thing where my ears really pricked up because actually one of the things that Les will say is the most important distinction between these two things is actually media. We're from creative agency background, so we tend to think about what the difference is in the style of the creative, the messaging, is it more emotional? The biggest distinction is actually the media choices you make, the breadth of your targeting, and how close they are to the point of purchase. So where when you said, when I look at these campaigns, or when you, when I see these campaigns, I can't remember what your exact word was, but you would see, it's it's actually about who you choose to show them to, and when, as well as like what they are. So you might not when you're looking at them, kind of, you know, just reviewing them, you're going out and seeking them and you're paying attention to them. And that's not how people are kind of engaging with campaigns in the real world. But I had a really uh, nice chat on Twitter the other day, a nice chat on Twitter, a nice helpful, constructive one with someone who used to work for an insurance company called Direct Line uh, in the UK, who've now done, changed to a different kind of approach. But they, she said that they were very interested in the kind of brand versus activation split, but they would run the exact same creative. It was just different media buys. So daytime TV for driving sales activation because people have it on in the background. They don't mind stopping what they're doing to pick up the phone and make a call. And big evening primetime spots with the whole family watching uh, for the brand building work because people aren't going to stop watching their favorite show and go and place a call to probably not to to buy some insurance. But the exact same creative Interesting. So, so would you say those are kind of two tracks? Like, I think when we remind ourselves that media choices are the biggest distinction here, because the distinction is, am I targeting the whole market or in-market? Yeah, it appears from their example that you certainly can do that with the same creative, but you're still talking to two different groups of people in a sense. And that that can't change because there are always people who are in-market and people who aren't in-market. And that's a distinction that will always be the case.
3: I think it's such a great point because as, as kind of creative agency or creative brand strategist types, we in fact, there seem to be more of us on Twitter wanging on about this stuff. And so the, I think the conversation gets skewed to being about message, about ex- creative execution or content. And this this, this point that Claire's making, that, and I think Les endorses it, it's the media is, is the essential thing. The B2B Institute have this great new principle, which I think is, is fa- another fantastic rule of thumb, which is 95.5. Which is that for anything, any given market, only five percent of your 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 of the of the audience are currently in market. So ninety five percent are out of market. So that says to me, you can be broadcasting something to everybody um, with with a broad message that you want everybody to remember eventually, and and a subset, a small subset of that audience might respond because they they need they need to to they're in the market and they're making some kind of decision right now and that, that says to me do, it, do it. you can do one the same in the same execution it's the is the targeting that will be the thing that's different um it also says to me make sure i think the most important thing cuz more often than not you've got clients who are are in much more in that world of the short term and wanting the sale immediately and forgetting the importance of the longer te- the longer tail and so they're they're trying to push messages that are that really are quite specific, or maybe too many messages, or their messages, or or offers, or discounts, or whatever that are only relevant to a tiny subset. You really need to stretch that what you're saying to be as as widely relevant to as many people for as long as possible. I think, even if you do also have some kind of call to action that's that's going to catch that five percent.
0: I think I think you guys are bringing up a brilliant point, but it is not the way the industry is talking about it. The industry are talking about it. In um, this sort of to your to to another thing you've pointed out, Tom, in previous writings, it's this one versus the other that it has to be emotional or practical. It has to be sort of left-brained and right-brained. It's it has to be it, it, this is this is the challenge that I think the industry has, which is we're uh, everything that I've read prior to this conversation has been about the fact that. The creative needs to be different because the audience is, is out of market right now. So anything that you're saying that's about creating a shorter term response isn't even paid attention to. I don't believe that. And I think that there are examples of campaigns that, that, that reflect that. And to the point that Claire brings up, um, is, isn't it, is it therefore the fact that we are, that our creative prescriptions are wrong? If we're being told to do ads that are purely emotional and there's a debate about that idealistic structure of what a brand ad should be, uh, are we creating the problem ourselves? Is creative execution the problem that we're struggling with? Does that make sense?
2: I think, yeah, I think I, there's some something, something that I uh, get quite annoyed about, even though I try and maintain a friendly demeanor. About it and be helpful, but it really annoys me is is the fact that I do think that again, kind of advice from Bennet and Field is, has become simplified and untethered and kind of gone off and had a life of its own. This idea that kind of brand building adverts need to be well, first of all, the idea that that's an opposite to a product advert, which is not what they're saying at all. That you know, you get to this kind of just like brand stratosphere that's just like no thoughts, just vibes um sort of thing, which I think is a real misinterpretation of what the guys are saying. But I think yes, does can then lead to people actually actively choosing not to include, you know, a, a product proof point or a yes. price point or something, because those things are kind of grubby and, and nasty. And, and I think that is a is a is a sort of caricature of actually the advice that, that's being given. So I think that doesn't help the case at all. Um, and I think, yeah, there are lots of brilliant sort of brand building adverts that are actually just kind of great product demos like Apple AirPods or, um, you know, lots of others like that. I mean, it helps if you have a really sexy product at Apple, but, um, yeah, I think, I think we've kind of caricatured each of those things. I think ultimately the difference is what is likely to go into something's work, somebody's working memory versus what are the characteristics of something that are likely to go into their long-term memory. And there are probably differences in that, but it's equally differences in the sort of attention that the person is paying to the work. Are they looking at it with interest because it's relevant to them or are they just running past it on the way to catch a bus and it's only going into their kind of very peripheral vision? And, you know, in that case, putting the details aren't going to get noticed. But if you can have details and vibes, then you're kind of going to hit both. And I don't think we should be. I think we should continue to aim for that, as you say. I think taking pride in, 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 in kind of assuming a super polarized stance is is not helpful. I really agree with you on that.
3: Tom? I think there's this, this kind of debate. I'm, I'm, I, I feel like we all end up as in our tiny little world dancing on pinheads around numbers of messaging, what does emotion mean, what does brand mean? I, I feel that the big, big, most important question and debate and bit of persuasion that has to happen is that clients need to, to, to work out how they're going to get their budget, budgets of a scale and their split right and to to get permission to do the kind of brand building bit because that's too often not actually happening at all and too often the budgets just aren't, there's not enough money being spent. Um, I, I feel confident enough in the creative world and and in creativity and in the brilliance of 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 most kind of agency creatives to to do cool stuff given the permission to do that um and yeah, oh, yeah but,
0: but that's because you're at you you've been at great agencies but for so many others out there they're struggling with this they're they're being told what to do and some of it is just so counterintuitive but the, the it's apparently evidence-based yeah and then not only are they being asked to do brand work, which they all love, most of them love, um, but it's they're being told how to do it, which uh, which which is great. But they're they're struggling with where to go. How do I? Uh, but I think we've unearthed something pretty major here, which is what you and Claire are saying is about the media aspects of it. Because that explains why Geico works that explains why progressive insurance works why why so many of these brands here in the u s in particularly the insurance category is a great example of it. I think because I think there's a constant sense that people are in market and they're 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 on air pretty much fifty two weeks of the year. I mean they're the perfect example of 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 how this plays out uh, but um but they're doing multiple campaigns, creative executions based upon the same strategy. They have their sort of um, distinctive brand assets, both in terms of character, characters, colors, storylines. Um, they have all the things that they're supposed to have, but they're not broken up. But they are uh, performance brand marketers. They're doing it, and so it's. I, I it it seems that. Part of this, I mean, what I would take away from this is go with the John Dawes model and, and what John Herman is talking about and go with the way that those marketers are executing it, which is recognize that people are in market and out of market. It makes sense. Um, the 60-40 split I struggle with, and I, I, maybe it's just me because I'm naive. Still, it just seems such a battle. Is the solution not about thinking about it as brand versus performance, but branded performance all the time? The, the perfect split is not in the spend, but it's in the creative execution that it needs to do both.
3: It's tricky. It depends where you, where you want to see the split, whether you want to see that in a, in one execution, in a campaign, Les is really clear about this. And he, he would much rather a world in which you, you have, um, the right, the right tools for the right jobs, um. I think it's definitely possible that you can do things in one. I think that we're giving we we now have a, a wider set of platforms and formats in which you can you know you in an Instagram post in, in a nice video on Instagram you you can get a really good feeling for what a brand is about very quickly, really quite like it, and you're able to shop it. So I I think there are, are um developments in media that are allowing both to happen in, in a more effective way in one and then you you leave it up to the audience again to to sort of decide whether they're in market or not um i th- i think we do need to um caution against only ever doing everything tw- you know together um and do- you know this kind of double tasking thing i think i think could could be if we only ever did that i would worry a little bit
2: i think some brands probably doing it and doing it successfully i think and this is such an annoying answer i know but like different categories will operate differently um brands with different budgets might need to make different decisions because they have to do what's kind of reasonable and affordable to them um and yeah i think different i think different categories um do operate differently low versus high interest all that all that kind of thing so i think i do think there's a problem where in situations where it may be very possible to do it and do it well the fact that there are two teams who will not come together and be like guys yes. do you think we could do this together let's have a go you know what this feels like uh neither flesh nor foul let's go our separate ways and con- continue to collaborate like the assumption that we would always do it separately is probably a bit is unhelpful you know there's it's um that kind of discussion is 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 unlikely to happen because of a lot of the way that organizations and agencies and things are are set up and i think yeah
3: and i, I think there's a the, the other big problem I, see, I the biggest problem i see actually and it may just be kind of the the clients i'm seeing is convincing themselves to do anything that is let's call it brand and and a skepticism yes. about that a, a belief well actually, actually often it's not skepticism often it's we know that we could do it we know that we should do it but we can't um we we can't afford the payback to come in 6 months or a year we need the money now so it's a, it's getting themselves off that hamster wheel of the of the short term kind of um the, the short term here i think is is a bigger problem for me it sounds like you know you you've got experience of of of, of teams who are or sort of brands that are that are um in a slightly different place. But that, that convincing themselves in the first place is a bigger issue to me. And then for figuring out how you do it is, is 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 to me is is details. But essential to that is getting people working together and talking. This 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 siloed thing, people having disincentives, sorry, in, the, the wrong or different incentives. So I've been thinking about ROAS recently, which is the, the kind of a, the digital equivalent of ROI. And you get teams who are Incentivized on ROAS, which is a very short-term metric, which can be actually what, what is
0: what is ROAS? Uh... Return on
3: advertising <laughs> spend. Um, it's uh, it's it's an equivalent within Google and Facebook etc. Of ROI. It's measured slightly differently, and basically it says if somebody has had the opportunity to see an ad over a 28-day period, if they then buy something, um, then then the platform will take credit for that. Um, and so it's a kind of um, it's it's a, it's an attempt to calculate the the return on the ad spend that you've put into that platform. If people are incentivized to do that, it can do strange things. It can lead to you over um, targeting existing buyers, people who are actually going to buy anyway, maybe people who are just on their way to buy. And so you get a very skewed picture of what's working. It was described to me as a brilliant analogy. Somebody said it's a bit like if you were if you had a football team. And the centre forward was the only person getting any credit for this. Is sorry, this is a soccer analogy for your for your US listeners. Um, the uh, <laughs> the centre forward is getting all the striker is getting all the um, all the all the credit for the goals, and so the the coach the manager takes all the other players off all the defenders and midfielders often only has a team of ten or eleven uh, uh, goal scorers. The the whole thing wouldn't work. Um, so you, you've got to have a blend, you've got to have a balance, and you've got to have the team working together because you can't just be rewarding the people in the final third of the, of the pitch.
0: So um, a couple of final questions. One is, given all that we've talked about here and how you guys personally feel about how things should be done, who are you admiring uh, campaign-wise, brand-wise, in terms of what they're doing in marketing and communications? Give, give us one or two examples from each of you and 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 what you admire
2: um i I'm conscious that us out here in the u k and your kind of American will have different um different frames of reference, but hopefully uh this brand is one that everyone will know, and despite being a vegetarian, I think k f c are doing a great job here in the u k and actually I think, yeah, so I think most people know k f c um they they do a kind of mix of brand and activation stuff i suppose you could say but i think that their brand work is often very appetizing and could make anybody who sees it fancy some chicken right that right now they basically did a whole campaign that was just photos of people like eating chicken having a lovely time
0: finger looking good
2: finger looking good exactly going back to the roots of the brand so it's it's triggering all those brand cues it's instantly recognizable it's core product um, and it's probably tapping up, topping up those long term memories and, and reigniting those memories of that famous slogan. But also, they were super appetizing and you kind of fancied going to a KFC right that moment and buying some. Equally, they do things like buy ads, advertising, you know, meal deal for X pounds or lunchtime offer for this much. And you get targeted with those during the working day when you're about to come into market or go for lunch, as normal people might say. And those ads are very specific and they're very value driven and offer driven, but, and it's the the agency here does it as mother. And if, so props to them. The art direction is gorgeous. The tone of voice never, never slips. Um, it's, it's all beautifully kind of crafted. And so even if you're not actually going out for lunch that day or whatever, like, I still think it's building those. So I think they kind of do both with both. And I think that's, sort of best practice for me
0: yeah we've had uh, we've had them on the show talking about exactly that so if anybody wants to listen to an episode <laughs> we've had mother on um how about i'll come back to you for a second one a second uh, claire uh, tom how about a uh, first one from for you
3: this is gonna sound a bit samey but I, I i've always um massively admired mcdonald's particularly their uk work but they're also very consistent globally i've worked on it for a bit so i sort of had seen it from the inside and and, and have great admiration for, yes, they have enormous budgets, and so they're able to do everything, and they're able to do loads of different kinds of things. Um, but every single time I see um, any kind of communication from that, be it uh, you know, something in social or a, um, a piece of out of home or an email or a TV commercial, it feels like it's coming from that brand, regardless of where it will appear on a PowerPoint chart, um you know where in the funnel it's supposed to be um targeting um they 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 speak like McDonald's whether they're talking about a 99p cheeseburger um which is designed to to kind of get get you in you know if you if for a snack or or they're doing a 60 second tv commercial about about you know we it's the return of the mac we're back after covid or whatever the thing is um they they put a great amount of of effort and attention into production everything they produce looks great. It looks quality. Um, And, you know, even though they're a a company that is incredibly kind of corporate and bureaucratic in many ways, they, they have a tremendous respect for creative effectiveness. Um, They test a lot of things, but they make sure that data and uh, an interest in effectiveness does not hinder creativity. They use data to promote creativity. And that's, um to be admired i think uh because it's not often used to promote creativity it's often the effect of of using lots of data can often actually dumb dumb down creativity or, or reduce creativity
0: we actually didn't uh, it's not. i sound like a broken record here but we actually did an episode uh with tom sussman and the whole mcdonald's crew on, on exactly that because they've been winning awards for long-term growth uh, and doing doing terrific, interesting work, and probably uh, Jenny Romaniak loves them for their use of uh, distinctive brand assets.
3: <laughs> they're, they're always the example I give of distinctive brand assets. They have they have easily the kind of like richest, deepest set of assets of all kinds, whether that's you know pr- product things, packaging things, lines, ideas, visual
2: things
0: all of that. that's right and, and and in the us, I mean the the work that Wyden and Kennedy and New York has been doing with them again, killing it over here with the uh, with sort of fresh fresh perspective on the brand. How about Claire, and how about a second one from you?
2: Oh my goodness, a second one um I think it's interesting that you were talking about insurance brands because I think especially in the, the era of Google, it's Pretty much a pure salience play when it comes to that kind of thing a lot of the time. you need to just be like, What's the website that comes to mind when I have to do this incredibly boring task of renewing my insurance? So I think the very long running uh campaign with the meerkats in the u k compare yeah. the meerkats I mean, like it's literally designed to get you to sit down and google uh, not google type in, compare the market versus the competitors. It's just being that one millisecond ahead in your kind of recall. Um, so it's essentially aimed at driving, you know, web traffic to their website, but done in an incredibly, uh, creative way that has also been sustained for an incredibly long time and captured the hearts of the nation, but started out as like a traffic driving, you know, we need to get more people to visit our website. So we'll just, uh, pretend that we're a Russian aristocratic meerkat, which is like a pretty lateral (laughs) creative move and having worked at the agency that did it as with all success stories about 50 million people will say it was their idea but whatever that's fine you know they distribute stuff toys once they were once the uk's biggest distributor of toys because everyone was getting a free meerkat when they took out insurance so and it goes you know the banner adverts have meerkats in the cinema adverts have meerkats in, there's just meerkats everywhere and it's a it's a brilliant uh example of yeah a business that is not too proud to sell in its brand ads or to uh lazy to craft in its performance adverts which i think is beautiful
0: tom do you have a second one before we uh go to Um, our final yeah so
3: i i there's a brand that i think is really interesting i don't know if it's it's made its way to the us yet but it's becoming quite global they're called what three words it's a it's a kind of it's really a tech startup it's scaling up rapidly um they they what they've done is amazing they've got they've assigned for every three meter square in in the world they they their their platform assigns three random words and those three random words can be used to 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 um you know for the emergency services to help your postman post post delivery people deliver your deliver your mail um you know, so it's got an incredibly wide application I think all the car companies are using using it um for sort of sat-navs and things now, and they're advertising expresses that idea of what they're about those three words really brilliantly they've got these brand assets where it's a basic normally it's a kind of visual of the of, of a place with the with a white square and the label with the three words on it and in their visual identity and it's it's like this brand has just been born from nowhere with its distinctive brand assets completely intact like box fresh out of the box uh it's using them and it's really consistently using them and you can see it um, you know i can see it on tv now i can see it in in b2b uh, it's it's sort of everywhere um and and it, it's a it's a brilliant case study in in actually i mean they've been quite lucky because they seem to have got it right first time and that's not often the case but they it's a very distinctive consistent thing that they're doing and it's very product oriented that the 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 communication is is what the product is and so I th- I think that's, you know, it completely, you know, gets rid of this ridiculous notion that brand is somehow doesn't have product in it. Um, it it's often not that emotional. I think, you know, this this uh, this thing of emotion versus rationality is weird. Um, and we kind of idolize emotion in communication at the moment, I think. And, and we get we get that wrong. We don't really understand what that means often when we're talking about that. So I think they kind of ignore that particular rule, which is fine. I think-
2: I think it often gets interpreted as sort of weepy. Yeah. like. I've Did heard you say that again,
0: say uh, Claire, you broke up a little.
2: Yeah. yeah, it often gets interpreted as emotional meaning, kind of like, you know, I'm so emotional. But You know, I'd have creators be like, oh, is it another privatizing brief? You know, we've got to make another ad that makes people cry. Okay. Like, yeah, that's definitely another sort of misperception. I think in America, brands are not afraid to be seen to be selling things and your ads are often less... I mean, I'm less exposed to them, obviously, but I don't think they're quite as sort of if it, don't interpret emotional in quite the same weepy way. I think humor is a form of emotion, and, and American adverts are very good at can be very good at that, and uh, aren't afraid to be seen to be selling something. Uh, they're not too posh to push, as we would as we would put it here.
0: Tom, did you want to jump in on that? I thought you'd
3: I, Yeah, you... I just I think U.S. advertising always seems to be funnier. Um, I don't know what it is. Maybe you've got funnier sitcoms, funnier writers. Um, there, there seems to be a, a kind of a comfort with delivering something maybe quite product focused in a funny way and getting out and, and kind of dis- disappearing from people's lives for a second. So, whereas yeah, there's not so much of that about. I think there's also, a, I mean, on this subject of humor, I think the globalization of advertising has probably ironed out a lot of a lot of humor, a lot of local humor. Language is less important in advertising these days, I think. So maybe that's had an impact.
0: And you know, it's interesting because one one point on that I'd add is, um, I'm not sure how how common this is, but it seems to be more common than it used to be. Some of the best work being done in the U.S. has been done by London agencies. I mean, I, and I'm talking about, in particular, Lucky Generals. Yeah. What those guys over there are doing with Amazon Prime, it's some of the some of the smartest stuff over here. It seems that more often when I'm looking at great campaigns over here, they're not being done by U.S. creative teams. They're being done from outside of the, the country, which sort of points to the sort of universality of, of uh, what's happening to our industry.
3: Maybe we're all guilty right now of the grass is greener and thinking some, something amazing is happening elsewhere. i also a massive fan of Lucky Generals and their Amazon work. Um, Amazon itself is an incredible story, I think, because, you know, Bezos famously didn't believe in advertising. He thought it was a tax on a poor product, so wasn't a believer in it. Then bit by bit saw the data, could see that actually advertising was a powerful force for their business, became... One of the biggest, if not the biggest advertiser in the world, became one of, if not the best Super Bowl advertisers in the world and has repeatedly had hits there. So I I think they're an incredible case study that we should all be very proud of globally. Um, And yeah, it's brilliant that a a British agency, a plucky little Brit uh, like the Lucky Generals um, is doing that. It's great.
0: It is uh, Claire Strickett, Brand Strategy Director at Jellyfish, and Tom Roach, VP Brand Strategy uh, at Jellyfish. We are really excited to have had this conversation. I think um, you have opened my eyes even further with a bunch of these comments that you've that you've made today. So hopefully that'll do the same for the listeners. Uh, thanks for your time today. Thanks very much.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: And we'll see everyone in the next episode.